Hi, I'm Aaron Ross Powell, and this is episode three of my show. Today I'm joined by my friend Will Duffield. We're going to talk about science fiction. So each of us, I think, wrote down five of our favorite science fiction novels, although in my case, one is a graphic novel and one is a short story, so I cheated a little bit. I, I didn't know graphic novels were on the table, but... You, you can revise your list on the fly if you'd like to. Uh, I'll, I'll stick with what I've got in front of me. Well, why don't you kick things off? Okay. Pick one. So, uh, I mean, mine aren't in any order. I haven't ordered it, but I would say my top one is uh, Diamond Age by Neil Stevenson. Okay. Um, and I'm a big proponent of the idea that science fiction is writing about the present day through the veil of technology and speculation. So I think that's guided my choices to a pretty large extent. Um, and in Diamond Age, I really enjoyed, I suppose that there's the 3D printing sort of element. Um, everything comes through the feed and is then turned into various products in people's homes, um, as well as the feeds the various uh, sort of social subunits or tribes that people live in and that govern a great deal of their day-to-day -day existence. Um, have, have you read Diamond Age? Aaron? I did read Diamond Age, but it would have been... Man, it would have been in high school. So it's been a long time. I remember it was... Thinking the, pl the plot was a little opaque at times, but very cool world building. Is that the one the yeah, little girl a, at the beginning gets like a birthday party that's on this temporary nanotech constructed island? Indeed. Okay. Um, yeah, and yeah. then the poor girl gets the book that was destined for the rich girl with the temporary island. The primer. Yes. And yeah. it teaches her everything she needs to know to survive in this strange pseudo-futuristic society. Um, I... So, as for why it uh, it sits at the top of my list, um, I'll I'll concede that the plot is uh, uh, plotting's not why you read Stevenson. Well, it's designed to take you on a journey through this world and showing you various bits of this fantastic place is the point of the plot, really, rather than. Um, the outcomes for the characters so well I let's see in my notes because I made it a numbered list they're numbered but I don't know whether to start at the top or bottom because they're not in any order well I'll start at the bottom with I guess what's number five by default so this is a short story um, I frequently a lot of the the fiction that I really enjoy is so I like really intricate plotting, um, and I like plots where I can't figure out how the author pulled it off. So clockwork things. This is why, like, I think one of the, the best mystery novels of all time is um, John Le Carre's The Spy Who Came In From the Cold, which is a novel where I, I can't figure out how he constructed that plot because it's so perfect and intricate and kind of loops back on itself and so along those lines I picked Robert Heinlein's short story All You Zombies oh that's I've read a lot of Heinlein but not not that you can you can find it online I'll put a link in the show notes it's very short I think it's maybe five pages long or something like that so in, I'll 
trying not to have too many spoilers, but I would encourage all of you to just pause this and go read it real quick. It was this was made into a movie a few years back with Ethan Hawke called Predestination that's very good um, and manages to, as is necessary when you're adopting a, adapting a five-page story to a feature-length film, they had to pad it out, but all of the padding is actually really well done and contributes to the story. But So this is a, a time travel story uh, about a guy who works for an organization that fixes things in the past, and so he goes back um, and the the eventual reveal is both shocking and out of the blue, but also perfectly well-earned and is very much an example of, in the way that often really good time travel plots can be, that it, I don't see, so from a writer's perspective, from someone who has written fiction and tries to write good plots but is not terribly good at constructing them, I, I can't figure out how Heinlein got started with this plot. Like, it feels like it almost had to spring, the entire thing had to spring in fully formed because there's no entry point. There's no point that I can see where like, I'm loop. Gonna, it's a loop. Like, you couldn't start here and then start building from it because you that point then wouldn't work in the larger whole. Um, so I just don't, I don't know. It's like watching, reading that short story is like watching a magic trick. Does it have a particular political theme? I don't recall one, no. I mean, it's it's so short that it's simply... It's like a single concept thing. It's just, here's a plot, and I'm going to try to pull it off. The movie, the movie layers in some more political angles that aren't present, um, but... And I would read the... Definitely read the short story before seeing the movie. The movie's very good, but... Part of the trickiness of the plot of the short story depends on it being prose. So the movie, by necessity, ends up giving more away up front. Um, but yeah, it's just it's just a flawless little story that I'm in awe of. I'll have to to give it a look. I always find Heinlein fascinating in his intellectual and political. Deli- development over his writing career going from kind of being a navy washout mm-hmm. and dealing with a lot of latent, latent misplaced nationalism um to then increasingly embracing first a sort of anarcho-capitalist ethos and then finally a full hippiedom yeah. um as yeah. the 70s are are in swing um so my my Heinlein selection was uh Oh, the moon is uh, yeah yeah um the moon is a harsh mistress which uh, uh seems to keep coming back as a cultural touchstone um today particularly when we think about achievable um interplanetary exploration um i uh yeah you you've read it I, yes yes I listened to it, which I think worked better because it's written in like vernacular, semi-broken. the The narrator, at least in the in the audio version, has a very thick Russian accent, uh, huh. and it's it's written in 
I found it harder to to get a handle on the prose reading it than I did just listening to it. I guess I never thought of the main character sounding particularly Russian, but um, he's I thought he was South American, but um, it's it's space. Everyone mixes accents. The the audiobook narrator's choice. It seemed to work okay. Um, I often yeah, it gives me hope. We hear at least young people today embracing the trope that they were born too late to explore the Earth and too early to explore the stars, so they'll have to explore cyberspace. Um, but the uh, De La Paz character, uh, the old anarchist professor who gets shipped up to the moon as a political dissident very late in his life, gives me hope that I can <laughs> so- someday become him and you actually make it to the, moon. to the moon. Well, you know, if yeah. you're a political dissident being shipped somewhere, the moon certainly sounds more interesting than Siberia or Gitmo. I suppose, although my guess is the moon gets pretty monotonous pretty quickly. Yeah, but, but you're on the moon. The view is always good. It changes constantly. That's, that's true. Um, depends on what the amenities are. Well, it was uh, f- fairly harsh in the novel, um, but you get a whole new legal system you can help to develop. Um, I thought that the process Highland describes of adjudicating uh, s- pseudo-simple disputes um, between loonies, the the folks who live on the moon, was fascinating in drafting a judge on the spot in to resolve the conflict, Um, but the perceived level of responsibility, social status, uh, amount of trust and faith they'd place in whoever they saw walking by um, was pretty interesting. Okay. So my not really in any order number four is the graphic novel so I'm getting the unconventional choices out of the way first and that's Transmetropolitan Warren Ellis's magnum opus um, I I have always wondered how many 30 something journalists working today Became journalists because they read Transmetropolitan. Um, when I when I asked this on Twitter years ago, I had three or four people reply saying it may not have been the thing, but it was a thing that led them to this career. Um, Transmetropolitan makes journalism look like the coolest profession in the world. It does, but it it often feels as though the journalists who come closest to uh, the transmetropolitan ideal are horrible people. Um, oh, yeah. I, I think of the, the Mark Ames, Yasha Levin crew as, you know, going around pieing the head of the New York Times Bureau with a, a dubious pie. Um, well, so so I'll just... Uh, so for those who don't know the, the series, this is a gonzo cyberpunk um, set at an unspecified time I believe in the future uh, it feels like it's not this isn't space opera so it's it's relatively near future high tech kind of lots of extrapolation from current then current trends um, so this would have been it's like early 2000s I believe 
um, Hunter S. Thompson yeah. dumped into a vile yes, cyberpunk near future. Main character is a is a successful journalist and columnist, Spider Jerusalem, who has returned to the always unnamed city, which is where all of the the events take place, um, and gets involved with all sorts of political and corporate stuff going on. Um, takes down near candidates and politicians um, and it's just filled with cultural commentary and terrific writing and amazing art and it, it just is to me kind of the pinnacle of what there's like two kinds of cyberpunk in my mind um, there's the there's the Blade Runner-esque we're going to take the 1940s and give them cybernetic implants and um biotech and things like that but the the very almost conservative and cold um, gray cyberpunk and then there's the transmetropolitan kind of cyberpunk that's that's colorful and brash and everything is insane and all of the characters are insane and every kind of tech has been taken to queasy heights um and and so the city is unlike unlike the world of Blade Runner, which is like a world I would want to live in. I don't know that I would want to live in Spider Jerusalem's city, but well, it's, it's it's a it's I a fantastically well realized setting, which is a big thing for me in a lot of the. It's the also interesting that stood out to me to look at when those two styles of cyberpunk uh, seem to have been written, um, in that with the transmetropolitan, the more lurid fictions. You saw a lot of those, in particular in the UK, coming out of the 80s Thatcherite financial boom. Um, And there the concern is much more with unrestrained capitalism, I think, than unrestrained, say, biotech um, or science writ large, and deals much more with how human beings are apt to use these things than the dangers inherent in the technology themselves. Um, but the worlds are much less stable across the board. So yeah, I think Transmet is probably, I mean, it's probably my favorite comic of all time. Um, second only maybe to Dave Sims' Cerebus. But um, it just stands out as a phenomenal piece of world building um, and and just the the inventiveness of it is is off the charts. That it's just filled with really interesting ideas, even if they're throwaway ideas. Uh, and and even in its over the topness, it's still. I mean, reading it now, it still feels pretty prescient. Well, yeah, there'll be elements that are made fantastic, the idea of a politician being cloned or living in a physical silo until he's 30 years old and ready to run for some office. But contemporarily, we certainly see young people with political aspirations who stay off of social media and attempt to avoid doing anything that might potentially bring disrepute upon them in order to one day run for office. Um, The means are again, a little more outlandish in Transmet, but 
the ends, the, the goal in mind and the single-minded pursuit of it to the exclusion of, well, living any kind of life um, are similar. So what's your next one? Uh, so, let's see. Off of that, I guess I'll go with The Peripheral next by William Gibson. You liked um, that? Yes, I liked that. You okay. didn't? I I enjoyed it enough, but I had issues with it. I would have put it in, in the lower tier of Gibson. Oh, I don't know. I, I put that down as one of my big uh, Why Trump Won books, frankly. Um, it It's, again, set in a world in which you have a further future, sort of post-collapse and recovery, London, interfering in an intertemporal fashion with a near-future sort of 2020s America and West Virginia in particular. Um, and at least to me, I'm not sure if, if this is exactly what Gibson is going for, but it feels as though uh, it's a... Uh, a story about global neoliberal capitalism interfering with the lives of little people in ways that they can't possibly comprehend um, and what their their grievance looks like, how it can play out um, in the face of this meddling. I suppose that's all true. I'm going to, I guess, if I criticize the book a little bit... Uh, I suppose that's all true. Um, it's it's interesting metaphorically, but it felt so. I know that you know not all kind of open plot threads need to be closed off, but this was a book where I felt I wish that it had been clearer what was going on, so that the setup that these these two universes can kind of access each other through some sort of server I, th I think that was the, the th like it was some discovered server somewhere that no one knew what was going on and so it's never really clear whether this is they're re reaching you know it's a time travel like they're reaching into their own past um, is is one or both of the universe's simulations living within a computer and the simulations are interacting with each other um, is this some sort of dimensional gateway and so I, I guess I wasn't clear on what the terms of the universe were. I, that that didn't bother me. I felt as though that was a valuable part of the story, because you're coming in from the perspective of the 2020s Hill people, effectively, and they don't understand what's going on. Um, the confusion that oh, what's, the main character uh, faces when she f she's first mentally pulled through to future, further future London, inhabiting a sort of robot body there to interact with people. She can't travel physically, but her consciousness um, can. I, I thought that that heightened the sense of disassociation between the two, uh, the incomprehensibility of what was happening to them. It does have me, I confess, to being a bit worried about his next one um, because, well, so I'll, I'll say you, you said that this was a, this book came out pre-Trump um, and you said this was 
to you one of the books that explains why Trump won. Um, in the during the campaign, so I was following Gibson on Twitter. Um, he his his politics are, I guess I'm going to say. From what I've picked up on Twitter and his other writings, his politics are not as smart as I would have hoped they would be. Um, he he kind of has a I'll call it just like reactionary um, NPR style like middle of the road leftism. And I don't uh, know if they may have used to have been better, but in the past year, he certainly seems to have been seized by Trump fear. Yes, um, and so the new the new novel, which I think now comes out in December, uh, is is about an alternate reality where Hillary won. Yeah, which, I, I hope sounds, it's not a coping mechanism. Yeah, um, which sounds like a coping mechanism and sounds like it could be fairly, you know, um, cringy, depending on how awesome of a president Hillary Clinton is. I mean, it, it may be, he may savage her too, um, or it may tur- not turn out much better there. So well, I... this is actually this is something that I have so in you know, with the rise of social media and especially on Twitter, you can get you can get access to the thoughts of one's favorite authors, and it's not things. always a, a good thing. And it's not always a good thing. And I have found that increasingly, I mean, I have drawn down my Twitter use a lot, uh, but when I was more active on it and I would follow a lot of authors, I always I. I had to stop following favorite authors because it turned out, and in in particular their politics, and I know that this is, you know, I ought to be able to set this aside, but it's what I do for a living, and and I have come to find how many of them have just remarkably boring politics. Like, these really smart people who write politically very interesting novels, and then their actual political views are just this kind of unexamined, like, you know, conventional wisdom. Um, it's just I got I actually got in a Twitter argument at one point with Joe Hill, Stephen King's son, who writes his own horror novels. It was not among my favorites, but I I was reading one of his novels and followed him, and he was just trash talking libertarians this is way back before trump and before everyone was panicking that libertarians were were causing you know the downfall of the gop or something and and it was just i i interacted with him and he just blew up at me and he's was just like i don't care what you think you people are evil and so on and so forth and just like how these how these very important people or not very important very intelligent people some of them i think are genuinely important joe hill is not but genuinely intelligent people um who i look up to as writers are just can be so dumb politically well i suppose you know there's no necessary connection between being a good writer and having a certain level of political understanding or political eloquence. Um, however, it does seem odd when one's work explicit, seemingly explicitly addresses themes that the author himself uh, is resistant to grasp, um, and I'm not, not really sure how that works out. Um, yeah. 
I, I suppose there is the long-standing argument that a lot of literary criticism is imputing themes onto works that the authors neither imagined or intended to be there, and that this would lend some level of credence to that theory, um, that were just post hoc adding insights to to works. But, yeah, I, are there any um, authors you find who you were surprised by their level of political understanding or engagement with the discourse? I don't know. That's a good question. Um, I don't recall... Um, the Most of them just didn't write about politics all that much. Um, I mean, the one... So one author who I didn't include on this list but possibly could have, who I think is very smart in this regard and is certainly like someone who I politically disagree with very much but seems to both both in his text and his other writing both in his prose and his novels and his other writings is Ken McLeod mm. um, who his his novel The Star Fraction which is a kind of post-cyberpunk he, he actually in the very beginning he's got a preface and he he says that in part in this book he was trying to work out so he's a he's a, at the I don't at the time I don't know if he still is but he's a committed socialist who read Mises hmm. and was troubled by the critique Mises had of socialism and and then read more libertarian writers he mentions reading Nozick as well and so is trying to work these ideas out and so the the star fraction is a very weird book but is ultimately about um uh, england there's been a war and england has broken up into different governments and one is a kind of christian theocracy and another is an anarcho-capitalist zone um, and he's just working out these ideas and so his main one of his main characters is um, a Trotskyite who works for a, a Bolshevik mercenary company and so that a lot of the book is arguments among these like Trotskyites living in an anarcho-capitalist society and working those sorts of ideas out and so very politically astute and, and interesting thinking through of ideas um, that, that seems well-rounded and well-informed. But, but otherwise, most of, I think most of my favorite authors have very odd politics. Um, but that just might be me. Well, it, I guess there's some who it certainly seems as though their politics and writing are a little more united. Mm -hmm. um, to go back to, to Stevenson, he writes about crypto, and he seems like the kind of guy who owns some Bitcoin somewhere. Probably. Um, he, he plays with swords a lot. Um, the, the persona as a, a writer, the themes he utilizes in his novels, um, feel as though they're part of a greater cohesive whole. Um, so I think we're on my number three? Yeah, yeah. Okay. So my number three is actually 
two novels that are back to back. So, but they really function as one long story. Oh, so I'll give it's it. It's like to you. it's like saying the Lord of the Rings versus you know the Fellowship of the Ring, uh, and that is Peter F. Hamilton's The Commonwealth Saga. Um, so I, when I finished the Mass Effect games, when I finished Mass Effect Three, I had not read Grand Space Opera in a long time. <clears throat> outside of a handful of Star Wars novels that don't really count. And Mass Effect made me want to read space opera. Like, big, you know, the galaxy is at stake, um, star-faring civilizations. Uh, and I googled for something like writers like Mass Effect or, you know, trying to find you know novels like Mass Effect, uh, and the a number of that came up were this kind of Scottish new wave of space opera. So there's Peter F. Hamilton and uh, Alistair Reynolds, and Ken McLeod is in there, and so I picked up these books, um, and they are astonishing in terms of they're huge. I mean, each one is like nearly a thousand pages long. Most of his novels are a thousand pages long. Just incredibly intricate world building. Uh, so this one is basically the tech that gets people around is um, I, I'm trying to, I'm wondering if I'm getting his worlds mixed up, but I think that this one is like a, a teleportation. It's like wormholes of sorts, and so you can you can open a wormhole on a planet and walk through it to get to another planet. And and so there's a there's like a galactic civilization of humans. Very interesting political uh, institutions and economic institutions have sprung up in this. Lots and lots of characters. Um, lots going on and the the setup is that a guy an astronomer notices that a star went out and they send uh, an investigation and find that there's that basically a dyson sphere like a giant an entire star system uh, entire solar system has had a barrier put around it uh, and Investigating why sets off a chain of events where the you know the galaxy is at stake and humanity may be conquered and so on, um, but it just was exactly what I was looking for. Like it's it's a thousand pages that moves at an incredible pace. The prose is not it's not like flashy the way that Gibson's prose can be. You know he's not he's not like a a brilliant prose stylist, but it is perfectly functional you know you never you never like notice it which is good um, the characters are all well drawn the dialogue feels real the world building is incredibly convincing and from he's Hamilton is very good at taking a single idea like in this case we can um, we can teleport and also I think this he can um, there's there's like a, a life extension tech 
where you can go in and be basically your body is rebuilt for you um, and just extrapolating from that you know how would that affect commerce how would that affect government how would that affect dynasties and so on um, how, how much of an impact do individual characters have on this world because one issue I often have with grand space opera sort of sci-fi is that either characters, individuals, are relatively meaningless because of the scope of things. Uh, that was always my issue with uh, the culture series or, or universe. Um, or you end up implicitly buying into a great man of men of history theory, which I think you know, Mass Effect, you play the great mm -hmm. man, but uh, he's pretty much responsible for everything. I would say I didn't... So the, the the main characters have a significant role in the story and a significant effect on the events of the story, but I never felt like it fell into great manism. That that their roles were important because of where they happened to be placed, uh, because you know they were they were the scientists involved or they were the heads of the companies involved. So they tend to be large players, but he he even the small ones he works in in convincing ways like i didn't i didn't notice that um and it felt it felt legit and satisfying um and i'll say i i effectively picked the commonwealth saga at random out of his his works that any of them could have stood in in this regard that they're all i mean his books are all about the same in terms of like how good they are how competent they are how interesting they are um and and it, it very much scratched that space <laughs> opera itch that I had. Well, I guess I'll go to my, uh, the, the closest I have to a big space opera, which is uh, Three Body Problem by Liu Sixon, or, I mean, really, the whole Dark Forest trilogy. Uh, Three Body Problem is the first of a, a series of books. Um... The author is Chinese. The translation for the first one was quite good. The second one was not. And then they have the the original translator back for the third. Um, but it's it's entirely readable and very good hard sci-fi. Um, you know, some of Stevenson's harder sci-fi. I, I think you get lost, or f frankly, his descriptions of orbital mechanics become <laughs> boring because they're written because he enjoys writing about them rather than because they're integral to the plot. Uh, but I never felt that way with Three-Body Problem. It all had an impact on the characters, the world, um, and essentially the setup is that Earth becomes aware of a hostile alien civilization, but one that's really far away. There aren't any wormholes. They can travel near the speed of light, but not, not quite the speed of light. Um, and so we know that a much more advanced, hostile civilization is, is coming to our solar system to kill us, take everything we have, but they won't be here for hundreds of years. How can we now, as a species on a single planet without much capability, um, deal with this? 
how can we plot the future of our species and is it even possible for us as individuals with our own uh, impulses, moral outlooks, etc., um, to collectivize ourselves such that we're able to respond. Um, I think it has a great deal of salience when it comes to uh, dealing with potential environmental catastrophe. Um, and it's the first book that, that convinced me that SETI is a really, really bad idea. Um, that we shouldn't be firing signals out into the universe, saying, hello, we're here. Because anyone who receives them has very little way of knowing whether we're friendly or not. We can say we're friendly, but if you don't know that we are, and it takes you or would take us a long time to get here, um, then the first move you want to make is really just to end any potential threat before they get to a point where they can hurt you, because by the time you get there, meet up, hang out, who knows, both of your cultures may have advanced such that either they're hostile when they weren't before, or they're able to do harm to you in a way that they weren't before. Um, he conceptualizes it as a dark forest in which a bunch of hunters are moving around, not knowing who each other are. Um, and I, I found the, the whole series very compelling. Is it noticeably Chinese? No. Like, do I, you, I don't... You know, I mean, is, is there a... I guess... Of course, I assume that there's lots of Chinese characters, but is it the, is there a cultural perspective evident I, in it where you get a sense that this comes from a Chinese author? I, I didn't to... think so. I think it... It was simply less jingoistic than a lot of <laughs> yeah. Western sci-fi okay. that you read. Um, the non-American or non-Western characters didn't feel like tokens, um, which they unfortunately often do in in a lot of science fiction. So, I, I mean, I didn't feel as though it was Confucian or something. Um, okay. Okay. My. Number two has been meant. I mentioned it earlier, but my number two is Neuromancer. This is, I believe, among science fiction novels, the novel I have read the most often. I. So I adore Neuromancer. It took me until I believe the third read to understand the plot, to understand what was happening in it. Which isn't necessarily bad. It was worth reading three times, but it's a it's a somewhat confusing story. In part because, like a lot of science fiction, it takes a extremely well developed world, an extremely alien world. I mean, especially it's it feels less alien now because it's so much a part of the zeitgeist. Like we know we know what the world of neuromancer well, looks of like. A lot of it is been, is coming true. I mean, we live been, in the midst of the. Bama sprawl. Uh, the it's Boston also, I mean, Atlanta. it's it's coming true, but it's also that we don't Neuromancer invented decks. a genre, and so we've become familiar with the genre through other things. So it feels less alien potentially than it did when it was written in the eighties. Uh, but it is a remarkably well realized world, and it is 
it's the coolest future that I have ever come across. Like, I just, everything about it, the, the style, the language, uh, I just love. I, it's like, hmm. you know, again, it's not, it's, it's fairly dystopic. It's not necessarily the world I would want to see come about, but it is the coolest sci-fi setting. I, as far as coolest, and, and even within cyberpunk, I think Snow Crash is a much cooler, so you've, you've got motorcycles with, uh, an atom bomb in it that's hooked up to the rider's heart so nobody can mess with him because there's this sort of mutually assured destruction within, you know, ten miles or so of him. Uh, that, that's cool. I suppose, but I, I don't know. I think that the the coherentness of it, the the tone of it, the, um, I mean, the, the, the high-tech, low-life cliché of it that it is a it is a really good crime novel noir set in a in a in a world that's like custom built for that kind of story. Yeah, I I mean certainly at the time I don't know if you would have imagined Wi-Fi, but um looking back the fact that Everything requires a physical connection. You have to jack in. Yes. Um, goes a, a tremendous way towards building that sort of providing for a noir plot. Oh yeah, line. no, it it's, um, it would the novel would be far less cool if there were Wi-Fi. Like the just the very act of these, you know, hardcore computer hackers plugging something into their heads. It just is, and the. And, and everything that goes with that, that you can have your brain fried by, you know, computer viruses and electronic countermeasures is just awesome. Uh, it is interesting the things that he doesn't predict. Because, again, this is, I mean, this is a novel that, you know, to some extent invented the way that we think about computers today. I mean, we, you know, it's a guy who coined the term cyberspace and... Well, we don't actually have that strictly of that consensual hallucination. A lot of what's going on, like this, is how we think about the future. And of I think even today, everyone who's in VR now, mm -hmm. who's working in that field, grew up reading. Oh yeah, 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 definitely. Um, so in a way, it it becomes true by virtue yes. of everyone sharing a conception of what cyberspace ought to look like. Yes. Um, but but when I the last time I reread it, I was struck by the things that he didn't predict or didn't get right, like the fact that they still use fax machines to get the news. Uh, that and it's it's you know there's just there's like fax kiosks that you go up to and you pull the latest news off on a piece of paper, and so the you know it didn't it didn't occur to him that we would have screens that we could carry around, um, which. You know, at the time, probably didn't seem obvious, but seems remarkably I mean, obvious. There, now. his is less dystopic in a fashion because you have to go and print out the horrible things people are saying on Twitter rather than just yeah. laying in a yeah. pod, scrolling yeah. through all yeah. of it. Uh, but and and then also, I think Gibson is, I believe, the best prose stylist in science fiction, and so there are genuinely beautiful descriptions in there like just poetic language 
and and then the thing that really that always works for me with Gibson is is the tone that there's this constant tone all of his characters there's it's like melancholy it's it's like sedate like even when there's even when there's just like nonstop action sequences and there's one of the best action sequences ever written is the when they they go into steal the construct from the building and so it's a you know break into a corporate arcology and um and pull off a heist that they just there's this ex- just extraordinarily consistent tone to his books of coldness of detachment i think the the resistance against imposed purpose that you see amongst many of his characters particularly in neuromancer between the hacker who's had his ability to hack taken away sort of as punishment, the razor girl who's designed essentially as a weapon um, and yet resists that, Um, that goes a long way towards establishing this melancholic tone, Um, the question of choice, what what can these people do in the face of um, the motivations of others in creating them. Yeah. And so I, I've read a lot of cyberpunk since. It's cyberpunk is is easily my favorite genre of science fiction, but I still think this is the best one. Um, some of his later, some of the the other novels in the Sprawl trilogy, um, the the sequels, Neuromancer, come close, but Do you this think one just nails it for me. Neuromancer suffers to some extent from having become a touchstone. There are certain scenes, say, when they first enter the bar, the bartender's got a mechanical arm, the neon lights in the bar described in great detail. At the time, that was new, revolutionary, and yes, it's artfully presented, but now, or by now, so many other authors have described their cyberpunk bar in sure. a similar, though potentially a little bit less artful fashion. I think that that's it's hard where, not to go back and read it, it as a trope. That, that um, it's the artfulness of the prose, because even even if what he's describing has become cliche, Gibson's ability with the English language elevates it. Um, it's the same way that you know a. A great actor, even when given a terrible script, can can elevate it. Uh, even when they're speaking cliche lines, it doesn't sound like they're speaking cliche lines. I think the same applies to Gibson. So that the novel doesn't, for that reason, doesn't end up feeling dated, either in its you know just its tech or in its descent into clicheness because so many have come along and done the same thing afterwards. That there's just there's something about his prose that always keeps it fresh. Yeah, oh, as much as you you aren't supposed to describe the sky um, when opening a book, nothing ever seems to beat that the sky was the color of a television screen tuned to a dead channel. The sky above the port was the yes. color of television tuned to a dead channel. Yes, that's a, it's perfect because you know, like that that color it's exactly i i, I mean i think that and, and you've got your melancholy right you've there got that melancholy. no i think it's one of the greatest opening lines in fiction because it establishes it's perfectly descriptive and it establishes so much about the tone the use of television as a metaphor establishes 
the world, the way we're going to think about things, the context through which we're going to view the story, it's it's amazing. Well, there there we have it. That's that's the best. Um, I guess I'm I'm on my last last book here, um, and I've picked Ghost Fleet, which is written both by P. W. Singer and August Cole, um, two sort of contemporary defense experts um and it's not as far into the future as some of the others it's set late 2020s um but what it has that a lot of speculative fiction doesn't um is about 60 to 70 pages of end notes (laughs) at the end of what what is a fictional novel um linking to research papers, projects that have been funded that will realize all of the fiction, the fantastic elements um, that they utilize in the story. And it's an account of a a near-future conflict between the United States and China um, happening mainly in the Pacific Ocean, though you get into space a little bit, there's a sort of Richard Branson private space explorer send-up um, who, after being given a writ of marquee, um, is able to work as a space pirate or privateer um, while blaring Alice Cooper's space pirates from his uh, shuttle. Um, I, I think it does a wonderful job of realistically using fiction to explore what a near-future conflict might look like um, without really falling into traditional sci-fi tropes. Um, It seems very grounded in expectations extrapolated from ongoing technological advancements. Um, I don't know if you've... I have not read it. You recommended it to me. I'll give you my copy. Um, and it's uh, P.W. Singer, one of the authors, has gone on to work with the Atlantic Council on something called the Art of Future War Project, which regularly holds contests soliciting um, either works of short stories, plays. I think they even had a poem contest, uh, all designed to use fiction to inform decision makers as to what near future warfare might look like and how we can best prepare for it Mm. and its fallout Um, I I think it's an excellent project, it's very hard to get anyone, let alone um, young men joining the armed forces to read white papers, Uh, but there already it already seems to be a community that really enjoys science fiction Um, and therefore I think this is an an excellent um, method of outreach so my last one, I'm surprised at how little overlap there has been between It's, it's good. Uh, but my, my last one is, I guess, somewhat cliched, but it's Dune. I, so Dune often gets compared to, it's like the, the Lord of the Rings of science fiction, which I think is not quite fair to Dune. Um, Dune is, so in, in terms of world building, it's, it's incredible. Um, I mean, Herbert just was phenomenal at constructing cultures and societies and organizations, and and the politicking is is just awesome. 
um, like the intrigue and the the palace goings on. Uh, but <clears throat> I think Dune is an infinitely richer set of novels than than the Lord of the Rings in terms of its philosophical depth, its political astuteness, um, just the the ideas on display. The Lord of the Rings is is world building and good storytelling, and it's very good at those things. But it's not. Well, it's also parable in a yeah. way that I don't think Dune aspires to sure. be. Yeah. Uh, Dune is purer world building rather than relitigating the Industrial Revolution. It's So you can see, I think the thing with Frank Herbert is you can just see the genius at work in in these books, that this man is just dazzlingly smart um, and is pouring all of that in and... And so just the, I mean, the quality of the characters, the quality of the plotting is, I mean, it's a great story. Um, and, and just the, the, the concepts that it's wrestling with, the, the nature of religion, the nature of fanaticism, the nature of power, of faith, um, of, of prescience of you know determinism free will uh, i nothing i think has done it better um and i and then i confess that one of the reasons i like it so much is when i was an undergrad in i had an english class a literary literary theory class and i i wrote a paper and in the paper, I cited, I quoted from, I believe, God Emperor of Dune, the, the fourth book in the series. Um, I quoted something that the then God Emperor Leto II said to the uh, a clone of Duncan Idaho. I don't remember exactly what I quoted, but I and and the TA flagged that when she graded the paper and said that this was not an appropriate source for um, because it was I wasn't quoting it as like an example of I was like it was a it was a philosophical claim that was made and I thought it was interesting and pertinent and quoted it as I would any other like philosopher or writer and she said this is not an appropriate source and I then I was upset about that because I thought it was perfectly like you know I mean um, at least as as credible a source as the various French philosophers we had been reading in the class, uh, and I I went into office hours for the professor, and he called me in and I sat down to tell him about my my grievance and turned and at head level right next to me on the bookshelf was the complete Dune series. Um, and so he, I when I told him this, he nodded sagely and said that he would, he would change the, <laughs> um, the grade to reflect that, uh, and thought it was a perfectly apt source for the point I was trying to make. But, but yeah, I just think I think Dune is is pound for pound the best accomplishment in science fiction, um, and. And then I, the other, I mean, the other thing is just the. There's a real skill. Some writers have it, some don't. In 
naming people and things in imaginary worlds in in coming up with names that both are like are memorable and convincing and just work at like a euphonic level and herbert nails it like the the names and terms in dune are awesome and they're fun to say um favorite character best name I mean, I'm a best Baron Harkonnen. Yeah, best fan. name would be Vladimir Harkonnen. Um, but like, but all of them. I mean, Bene Gesserit sounds awesome, and Kwisak Tatarak sounds awesome, um, and Shai Halud sounds awesome. Like they're just they're great. It's just the language of the novels is really fun to say, which is something that just elevates because that's I mean. It, you see it more in like fantasy, but man, when an author is bad at naming, at coming up with like fantasy or pretend names for things, it's it's rough. Oh, what was the young adult dragon Aragon? That yeah. that suffered from very very bad naming. Um, this is almost, another thing that, to the it, point of making the book uh, difficult to read. In the tiresome. comparison of Dune to Lord of the Rings, that's another thing Tolkien was very good at was coming up with good. Yes, I I don't know if I'd give. Uh, Herbert the win okay. there. Um, I, I just I also don't think you see the secondhand study of language in Dune the way you do. Oh yeah, he wasn't. He it's not as it's not as developed in the Tolkien sense. It of sounds being a complete, good. Though. It sounds good. Like that's yeah. It's not. But it's there. I you don't get the sense of like complex and tactical rules behind all of it. Yes, when it can both sound good and sit on its own as a language. um, You've got to give some credit. Right. Um, So yeah, but I I have found I mean what, is there stuff coming out that you're excited about? Is there, are there genres you find yourself reading more now? Um, I'm, I'm trying to get more into short stories. Um, Now maybe that's just because I haven't been willing to dive into novels as much recently. Um, Have a fair amount of work reading that when I was a grad student I I didn't or could intersperse a little more fiction. Um, But that I I read um, Pirate Utopia recently which was... That's the Cory Doctorum? Um, is that Bruce Sterling? Oh, Bruce Sterling. Yeah. Um, and I think it, I guess going back to fiction that attempts to explore a certain idea or ideal, um, it, it does a great job of that with anarcho-syndicalism and okay. Italian futurism right after the, the First World War. Um, and... Uh, so I, I guess more of the sh- short stories that uh, occasionally masquerade as philosophy. Um, but as far as stuff coming out soon that I'm I'm particularly excited about, I don't know. I tend to be I, I sort of wander around bookstores and pick things up. I, I don't generally get uh, excited about the launch of of new books or follow current authors such that I know about books before they come out. Yourself? I... I'm reading less science fiction than I used to. 
Uh, I most of my reading tends to be crime fiction, but I'm really excited about a new author um, named I and I. Don't know if I'm pronouncing this correctly. Her first name is Ren, and her last name is Warum. It's like W A R O M. She wrote it's a it's a pair of novels, and I've only read the first one. I haven't started the second one yet. The first one is called Escapeology, and the second is called Virology. And as far as I can tell, that's the first. She's written some short stories before that, but these these are her first novels. Um, and they are I'm, I'm excited to watch, see what she does next these are kind of cyberpunky, but in a weird like the sea has risen um, and there's chunks of land floating around somehow that people live on and so there's these land ships that are like chunks of land with paddle wheels attached to them <laughs> um, and and then there's a weird cyberspace that is like underwater and it's it's just it's very odd and the prose is terrific and it's very dark um and and is some of the more inventive stuff that I've come across um but that's that's where a lot of my when I look for sci-fi it's in that kind of I I'm curious where the more cyberpunk end of things goes and i'm curious to see like as as our world converges with that yeah that's part of the the trouble of writing it anymore is it it's too close at some point you aren't writing fiction anymore yeah um and i found well with with gibson it's been interesting to see i suppose before the peripheral he seemed to with each trilogy get closer and closer to Mm -hmm. the present day without really talking about anything different um which i I suppose just indicates the level of ongoing convergence hi i'm nora powell thank you for listening to my dad's podcast i hope you enjoyed it if you did please consider supporting the show. It's easy. Just visit AaronRossPowell.com slash support. And I hope you'll join us next time.